Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series, Clear Skies Ahead, conversations about careers in meteorology and beyond. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Rex Warner. We're excited to give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We're happy to introduce today's guest, Javier Focasato, professor and chair of the Department of Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. Welcome, Javier. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me uh, in this interview. Thanks. Javier, could you tell us a little bit about your educational background and what sparked your interest in atmospheric science? Okay, yes. So, uh, actually, uh, my first uh, career is engineering, electrical engineering, and that uh, I study in Buenos Aires. But uh, my... uh, my enthusiasm comes from physics and engineering. <laughs> so uh, basically, uh, at the end of my career, I mean, I was always passionate about optics and about lasers. And so, and because of that, uh, once I finished, I started working as a scientist in, in laser engineering and developing what uh, everybody knows as LIDARs, which is uh, optical remote sensing systems. And so uh, after a couple of years that I worked as a scientist in Buenos Aires, I started communicating with the uh, scientists in France. Uh, and um, so, and, and then I, I imagine, uh, th- this is where the time that I started to look at one specific subject within the, the atmosphere. And so, and that subject was one of the most uh, complicated, as it is, uh, turbulence and atmospheric boundary layers. And so, uh, and and there I was, uh, you know, at the very beginning with this background in physics and engineering, and trying to make a signature within the uh, studies of boundary layer meteorology. And so, uh, and that's why I went to France to study, but to do my PhD in the Laboratoire de Meteorologie Dynamique in in Ecole Polytechnique in France. Uh, and so, and then, uh, so, so at, at that point, I transformed myself from being an engineer and a scientist into uh, into producing uh, or thinking about meteorology and. Uh, you know, and, and the science that come with it. So did you find that um, the coursework you took, you know, for engineering, it, it transferred over well when you were pursuing your PhD? Or did you find that you were at a bit of a disadvantage with some of the atmospheric science courses? No, because uh, atmospheric science is, is, I would say, a, a true STEM integrator. So... In order to be in atmospheric science is successful, you have to know physics. You have to, you know, uh, have a little bit of love for applied mathematics. Um, well, you can do models because models is, you know, the model results is like having instruments everywhere. Or you can do experiments as I do and, and develop experiments or develop instruments to do experiments. And so there is the engineering part. And, and also, you might say, you know, well, you did the, the studies in Argentina and then moved to France. But the point here is that uh, 
you have to have physics and mathematical backgrounds. And those can be obtained anywhere, basically. So uh, when students think about what is what you're going to learn in the PhD, this is not about just about physics and mathematics. You may have to learn something else, like some special mathematics that you might need to solve the problem that you are investigating. But the, the, the main thing that you have to learn is about how to do research, how to ask yourself uh, good scientific questions and obviously how to solve those. And for that, you know, you need a good background of physics and mathematics. No advisor will tell you that. I mean, you know, will teach you that. So Javier, for you personally, once you knew that you wanted to focus on boundary, atmospheric boundary layers, what opportunities did you pursue while you were in school that you knew would be beneficial to finding a job in this specific field or finding the next career step that would allow you to pursue this interest further? Well, the atmospheric boundary layer has this uh, complexity of flows and turbulence and dynamics and thermodynamics that is fascinating. First, you have to be fascinated about what you do. And that is an entanglement between yourself and the subject. This has to happen. So you have to marry that. And this marriage is forever. So if I'm allowed. <laughs> so, 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 but the point here is that then I have to imagine myself that after France, I have to come back to Argentina. And this is what I wanted to do, basically. But that was the year 2001 and 2002, which is a catastrophic economic crisis and, and you know, political uh, problems. So then it was very difficult to do research under those conditions. So, so but, but the, the questions that you ask about how the boundary layer actually is, I mean, the boundary layer is absolutely very important for two, at this moment, for two main elements. One is air quality and the other is wind energy. Both extremely valuable in society. Exactly. As we move forward and, uh, you know, coping with climate change and things like that. So the point here is that uh, sometimes you have to realize that the little thing that you want to study probably is not in the focus of the main agencies, but, you know, with a little bit of an extra thought, you know, you turn around and then you can do air quality and at the same time do and advance the fundamentals that you are looking for. So this is something that I learned coming to the U.S., because in other countries like in Canada or in France or in Argentina, you know, there is a, a more acceptance, I would say, in the organizations to be more fundamental. So what was your first job in the field and how did you end up all the way in Alaska? So my, my first job actually was after doing electrical engineering. So I started working in laser physics and uh, laser engineering, and then uh, developing new lasers to actually apply to develop LiDAR remote sensing systems. For example, for uh, Doppler wind LiDARs or uh, differential absorption LiDARs for ozone in the troposphere. 
So, uh, and, and after a certain, uh, like uh, four or five years working uh, uh, in laser engineering, I moved into LIDARs and I started developing the f- uh, with my colleagues, obviously, uh, the first backscatter LIDAR for tropospheric studies in South America. Um, besides the, the one that was already in Manaus in Brazil, that was basically for mesospheric studies. And so um, after that, I found myself that I needed to take a scientific subject, and that was the boundary layer, the one that I choose. Uh, obviously, as it comes along, aerosols and clouds, uh, once in a while, I, I, I work on that as well. But the main subject is the boundary layer and, um, and applications. So the, the first time actually was after the, the, the study in engineering uh, in the National Research Council in Argentina. And then after that, I moved to um, France. And then I came back to Buenos Aires for two years. And after that, I took a, a postdoctoral uh, in the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada and to work in chemical physics. And there I developed a, a new instrument for aerosol chemical speciation. And after that, I was ready to apply for a faculty position. Uh, and, and one of those uh, positions that came out was in, in the UAF, in the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And um, so if you wanted to know why, well, because in pursuing your scientific objectives, you will have to conjugate life, okay? And so at one point, uh, I found that uh, one of the most critical elements to understand are the stable boundary layers and the, the boundary layers with weak and sporadic turbulence, which are the ones that we have here in, in this latitude. And so, um, and I think that is... Uh, I was lucky enough to actually uh, spot this area and uh, and and work. Uh, for example, now we are conducting an international experiment uh, that is called Alpaca, A L P A C A, and that is uh, air pollution in the cold and the dark. So understanding the chemicals that are in particle matters and um, in the cold and the dark. But uh, to understand that and to understand the sources and how you uh, how those chemicals get attached to those particles, there is a, a, a background understanding that needs to be done in terms of radiation, turbulence, and flow dynamics within the atmospheric boundary layer. So uh, at the beginning, I will say that my first job was about laser engineering. Then after that, I moved into LIDARs, and then I concentrated in one scientific area. So for some folks, Javier, here in Massachusetts, uh, they find it quite intimidating just to move from the south shore of the state to the (laughs) north shore of the state, or vice versa. So you've mentioned um, living and working in different countries, and I'm curious, and this question could be helpful for international students who are listening in, what is it like to move from country to country um, as you're pursuing your academic and professional career? And uh, what sort of steps did you have to go through along the way that maybe folks wouldn't think of or wouldn't anticipate? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, like I said uh, at the beginning, you have to have very clear scientific objectives. 
Sometimes those objectives sounds like a dream, but you have to be able to put fire in those dreams. And um, you have to have discipline. You have to work uh, uh, every day. You have to move the, the, the edge. <laughs> And so, uh, in, uh, obviously, um, I was very lucky to be educated in Argentina because it is a country where the university is, uh, the, the national universities are free. And obviously, lucky as well to be in France because uh, there as well it is a similar system. And um, and again, like I said before, uh, you know, uh, it wasn't. I mean, the, the the level of physics and mathematics I had that. The the thing that I wanted to learn is how to do research, and that is a key element in the life of a scientist. So, uh, and that element comes with the interaction. You cannot leave your students alone. You have to interact with them. So research and the, the scientists get formed under the interaction. And with that interaction, nowadays, and in order for the international students to be successful in, in our country, it is very important that we integrate in those discussions, diversity, and, and be in, a, in, a, in an inclusive uh, atmosphere. A space to be wrong, for example. This is something that we don't hear much, but, uh, but you know, enabling, as a faculty, enabling those spaces to the students, allow us to have them closer to us so that we can instill the science they need to receive. And this is very important. But for international students, I will say that if you think about what is the mathematics that would be different here or anywhere, I'm not going to mention any university. So it is known for 200 years. The physics, basically the same, at least to the undergrads level. So then in the grads level, it's different. Then you need to, you know, if, if you would like to study a PhD in climates, or in, in, in high latitude polar meteorologies, probably you will have to come here because here we are dealing every day with that. So is it, is it easier to, you know, get a work visa or to um, get a position in the U.S. if you're like in a STEM field? Is, so did you have to um, apply for the, the position at the University of Alaska and then you know, get a visa? Like, how, how do international students, like, what types of paperwork and things do they need to do in order to get employed in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you are talking about students that are coming to the country uh, to do graduate studies, MS or PhDs, the first thing that they have to do is to get in contact with the faculty. In general, the students fire out applications without even talking to the faculty. And the most important thing is here The first step is to talk to the faculty, write emails, try to get in touch, see what they are doing and how what they are doing actually matches what you want to do. So, and this is the first exercise that everybody has to do. After that, then, then you will have to apply, you know, you have to set your paperwork and, uh, and the department will, you know, will... Uh, 
evaluate your credentials. And then, uh, you know, one thing that I didn't know when I was in Argentina was that actually in the STEM field, you can get paid to do the master's and the PhD. Well, I really didn't know that, seriously. So, so uh, I thought that I should have to move here and then pay by myself, uh, you know, everything. But this was a time, you know, 92, 93, we didn't even have emails. Actually, my first email was to my PhD advisor in France. <laughs> so, <laughs> the yeah. golden days before yeah. email. <laughs> yeah, before email. <laughs> yeah, we, we have only one computer in the whole center, you know. To... I love it. <laughs> so on the flip side, do you, for your students at UAF who are from the States or local, do you encourage them to to go elsewhere during their studies and their research abroad? Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And I, one of my functions is actually to, because I, uh, over time, I teach also in undergrads uh, in, in engineering, mechanical engineering and electrical engineering. And so beside my normal courses in nanofake sciences in graduates. Um, no, yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, basically, what I'm saying always is before finishing your BS uh, or BA, you have to get an experience. Uh, basically, here's the thing. There, there are four elements that I evaluate for any graduates. Level of mathematics, level of physics, experience abroad, because when you go out, when you go somewhere, you change. You know, it's very difficult to change the place where you arrive, <laughs> as we all know. But you experience, experiment, and you change. Mm -hmm. And this is very important for you. And then the number four is, do you have experience of writing? Writing papers. Because graduate school is hit running. Nobody will wait for you to see if you know how to write or, uh, you know, many of the failures in PhDs actually are that you know, they don't know how to write, you know. So uh, not that I fail anybody, but that's normally the thing. So four elements. Being abroad is absolutely very important in all disciplines. Absolutely very important. And so uh, I encourage that, stimulate that, because at the end, when you finish your career, your BS uh, or BA, you are going to have the, just very simple, the recommendation letter for your faculty entourage, <laughs> but also one external, <laughs> the one that comes from those summer research experiences or uh, your uh, semester abroad and things like that. And so, uh, yeah. And also to recognize uh, the, the good things that you have in your own campus and also the ones that probably need to be improved. Uh, so, so that's why students have to be, uh, you know, abroad. And also the university knowledge cannot or should not be restricted to just a few faculty that teaches. It need to come from those experience, the diverse experience that a student can have as it goes abroad. Could you walk us through a typical day on the job? Like, 
you said you teach some courses and I'm assuming you do research. Like what's your day-to-day like? So there is one book that I always recommend that is uh, How to Write a Lot. <laughs> <laughs> that, that book is very serious and significantly important, I will say, because the thing that I do is I write two hours. I take two hours of my day to write papers, advance my papers, advance my proposals. But uh, it is interesting because uh, the author actually makes a picture, a photo of his desk. And in the desk, there is only the computer, the chair and the desk. That's it. Eventually the printer. No emails. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to concentrate at least two hours every day. That's the only one way uh, that you keep fresh, uh, accommodating your ideas, uh, getting synthesizing the experiments and uh, into the science that you would like to convey. No chessboard, no video games, <laughs> no, 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 no uh, beach reads what's, or fiction. What's just, up or just the important stuff. No, just but, but this is a, I mean here's the thing in the STEM fields. Like it happens, you know, you were saying, Rex, that you had four years of French. Well, let me tell you, I had seven years of Latin, Greek, classical education, uh, you know. And so you can imagine me that I transpire science and engineering, you know, how I was uh, traveling and navigating those environments. And so uh, even though, but the point here is that I'm trying to say is that when we are uh, so driven into STEM fields, we don't like much uh, writing, uh, you know, analyzing text, you know, the semantic, the morphology and stuff. But actually, this is absolutely very important because there is no use for a great scientific idea if it cannot be expressed. And, you know, the connection between our mind and the actual papers, you know, this is an interface that we have to work every day. This is an art, and we have to have it. How many courses do you teach, like, in a semester? Oh, only one course per semester. And so the rest is just your research and writing. So that's, that's, that's good, you know? You have a, a variety because at the beginning, Kelly, you ask about a day. Now, the day started with two hours of writing. <laughs> that you have to do it in, in a sort of an isolation because, you know, um, in my case, uh, I have an open door policy. So, uh, also because I am the chair. And so, therefore, students and faculty and, and colleagues, uh, you know, you know they, 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 I have to be open. Okay, and that's the way I like to do that. Uh, but I, so at the time that I arrived to my office, I have done my writing. So um, that's why I'm camping very happy every day. <laughs> you must get up early. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Five, six, depending on the day. But the point here is that uh, some days we do experiments and some other days we concentrate in the lab or in the, in the, in the offices, like everybody. Uh, the experiments here uh, are very diverse. Uh, normally for the research that I do, uh, which is uh, surface turbulence and land surface atmosphere interactions, I uh, do turbulence sensing um, uh, with lasers, with uh, 
sonic anemometers and uh, and so and then sometimes we go to arctic tundra uh, basins uh, sometimes we develop instrumentation in the boreal forest uh, and in some other cases we have to go to glaciers uh, which are uh, challenging uh, and very dangerous as well so uh, it is uh, it's fascinating I mean uh, because also you get to interchange you know with glaciologists with uh, geoscientists and a very diverse community uh, where you know you are an atmospheric scientist but you know, uh, and you bring, you know, your knowledge of the flows and the radiation and, and it's, it's so, uh, so interesting. Um, and we have so much uh, from atmospheric sciences, you know, in terms of all the other disciplines and, and, though, and building those interactions that is really very, very important. Uh, I think that this, this is the very good time to actually be an atmospheric scientist and meteorologist. Yes, it sounds like you really love what you do. Well, like I said, <laughs> you have to love what you do. <laughs> You're married yes. to it. You have no choice. <laughs> Javier, I, um, I'm definitely interested to hear more about what it's like to do research in the Arctic and the subarctic regions. It's certainly an extreme climate, an extreme environment. You said you've been there. How many um, months or days have you spent in the Arctic? And for someone that's considering doing research there, what would you either warn them or encourage them to do? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, safety is one of the most important uh, uh, tasks that we have to, you know, uh, be fully aware, uh, not only in the winter, but also in the summer. So um, at, at the temperatures we experience here in the subarctic and even in the Arctic, uh, in the winter, you have to prepare the experiments in a way that you cannot, for example, use uh, tape, for example, because at 40 below, the tape will break apart. And so uh, so you have to have everything prepared so that you can deploy in, in, in a short amount of times, for example. And the use of gloves, for example, is one of those. But uh, sometimes you have to take the gloves out to, to <laughs> protect the extremities. Yeah, yeah. But but sometimes you have to take the gloves out, you know, to you know to set up the instruments and things. And then uh, one of the big mistakes is to leave the gloves out, you know, at forty belows because immediately they will freeze up. Oof. So yeah. So then. Cold. Yeah, so then what you do is you open your jacket, you put your gloves inside your jacket and close it up, and then you do your work, okay? And then you, whenever you're done, yeah, so you can have the gloves uh, warm, you see? So uh, uh, in the summer, for example, we have, you, you can, we, we do deployments where, uh, in, in their country, okay? And so, therefore, uh, everybody has to be trained to to operate a shotgun. And, oh, wow! And normally, what I do is I go with the students, and and I do the the policeman <laughs> while <laughs> the students yeah. are um, yeah doing the you know programming the instruments or operating the instruments. So that because you know if you have to work because I've been I've been alone doing those things. Okay. 
And it's very stressing, you know, uh, the fact that you are head down, uh, you know, uh, operating an instrument or uh, programming an instrument. And, uh, you know, you might have some problems in the neighborhoods. An unwelcome visitor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have you ever had to use the shotgun? Like, have you ever encountered a bear where you actually thought you might need to use it? No, no. Actually, um, this summer we were entering uh, with one of my glaciologist uh, colleague, actually, from the university. We were walking uh, towards the Kennecott Glacier down in the, in the Alaska Wranglers. And uh, across the bridge, I saw this, you know, uh, a grizzly. <laughs> so, but immediately the bear moved away, and uh, and and it was interesting because it was a it was a bear that was a, a young one, and so uh, the young bears, uh, uh, you know, in a sense, try to mingle with everybody, you know, and so uh, sometimes it's. Is is dangerous? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're more playful. <laughs> yeah, right. so, and so. like all kids, they just want to have fun. <laughs> yes, exactly. But <laughs> in a level that <laughs> it's a little difficult to follow. So, what what do you like most about your job? Like, if you had to pick one thing that you enjoy more than others, would it be teaching? Would it be the research? Would it be Watching out for bears, the excitement of that. No, no, that, 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 not, that is not really, you know. But no, uh, there are many things. Uh, number one, I come to my classes so happy, always, seriously, smiling. But it's, this is not just a, an effort exercise. It's just the way it is. Because you're coming, I know, I mean, I know that there are books around, but what these students need is my experiences beyond those books. And so, and that is something that I'm so willing to, to provide and, and, uh, and, and listen to them and interact and, and see how we can make the difference. How these environments are so different from, from the rest and yet so complicated. And so uh, that's one activity that I really enjoy and, and it's very important for me. And, and in general, what really is, uh, and I think that this is uh, the excitement about atmospheric sciences and meteorology, is, and, and, and especially in my case, is about the, the fact that I can do, I, I do observations that are unique, and then I can, at the time that I can build something that relates mathematics with the phenomenon that I am uh, investigating, and then bring in a physical explanation, that is where you have the summum of this excitation about doing atmospheric sciences. So being able to explain mathematically something that is a, a, a process in the atmosphere, uh, and so this is one of the most uh, interesting uh, aspects that I, uh, that I enjoy very much. How long have you been the chair of your department? I started two years ago, and um, uh, our department is only graduates, but uh, we, with the faculty in the department, we started developing the 400-level courses, and then uh, immediately I, and, and also looking at, uh, going back to what we were uh, talking about, uh, 
little countries and big countries, well-developed countries, uh, and compared to small universities and large universities. The intermix between sciences and engineering is something that is fascinating. And so uh, we created, uh, during these two years, we created uh, several minors uh, between atmospheric sciences uh, and engineering, and civil and environmental engineering, across campuses in the University of Alaska system. And so, and those are uh, in uh, minors are intended to reprofile, to provide uh, engineering uh, careers, and also to uh, provide new skill sets to those uh, engineering students. For example, when the students are uh, doing environmental engineering, but they are, uh, you know, required to uh, investigate uh, you know, uh, if you look at the landscape in the north, actually, uh, at the snow melting season, well, everybody is wandering around where the, the ice will go and where the water will go. Because for every day that you lose of operations, it's approximately 100,000 that you lose in, in the industry. So... Uh, in order, in order to move into that, well, the snow that is there accumulating on the ice comes from the atmosphere. So therefore, there is a need for the, the... So the best engineering we can provide is the one where we can understand the atmosphere. But in addition to that, the technology that we bring in using satellite remote sensing, for example, ISAT-2 for NASA, this is something that supersedes all the uh, engineering methodology that we have had from before. From before, many years ago, uh, you know, faculties were going to the Arctic tundra to, to test what the snow depth was. Now we can do this from space. Well, we, we can measure with the laser altimeters. I'm just saying that, that the science and technology we bring from atmospheric sciences can impact uh, engineering in a way that is uh, revolutionary. But in addition, uh, a, a student that is in engineering here learn not only how to do things in the Arctic, but also everywhere, because, you know, the satellites are global. For example, I wanted to ask you, Javier, what do you find as some of the largest challenges that you face either in your job personally or in the research or science community at large that you're looking forward to facing and finding a solution to over the next months or years? Well, yeah, well, there are many, but, uh, but I think that we are uh, on a crossroad here in terms of uh, increasing diversity and inclusion and, and equity. So um, there are many talented students that I've seen in all the programs. We have programs not only to do, to reach out native Alaskans and underrepresented communities that are all around, that go from Alaska to California. So, for example, we interact with the MESA program, Mathematic Engineering Science Achievement. And so we have uh, uh, community college students coming to, 
to do research with us. Uh, and, and it is amazing to see students that are extremely very well, you know, uh, and trained and capable with uh, profound desires to, to follow a professional career. And those students need to have an opportunity. And, um, and so, uh, and probably by being in California, beside very large universities, so not everybody has that opportunity. And yet, across the country, we have opportunities for those students. And so, um, I think that there is a, there is a, a need to, be, uh, to integrate those communities and, and provide this pathway for the students to achieve. Uh, because there are people interested in studying and getting a profession, and we just have to produce that. We have to be more empathic and, you know, and sensitive. And, um, you know, obviously, since I speak Spanish, you know, it is easy for me to interface the communities. But I have a student from France, from Germany, and they all are looking for... Uh, uh, I'm always saying, look, uh, let's talk, because you may think that I will try to convince you to be uh, in our university. And this is true. However, my ultimate goal, and the most important goal is for, for me, is for you, the student, to find your path. If I can help on that, I will be absolutely happy. Because that is the way in which a faculty in this country is about, is to help those students to find their path. Whether that path is in our university or in any university, it doesn't matter. The point is that we need to help the students to transition, to find the objectives and to find their way through, uh, through life. It's so it's sometimes frightening, you know, for people to think in their future and not knowing that actually the future is in, in their hands, you know, in their power, in itself. But still there is a need for those opportunities. Javier, thank you so much for everything you've shared with us. Before we end the podcast, though, we always ask our guests one last fun question. And I wanted to ask you, since you received your PhD from a university in Paris, could you tell us about a favorite place you frequented while attending school there, a place that we must visit if we uh, travel to Paris at some point? Oh, yeah. The, every Saturday, I used to go to the Quartier Latin in, in, in Paris, in downtown Paris, and um, to take uh, coffee and uh, and croissants. I've been sampling croissants all the way from Alaska to Asia, <laughs> and <laughs> I haven't found. <laughs> I haven't found. Believe me, <laughs> it's so desperate. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, so, what is the name of it again? The um, the cafe. Oh, there are many. I mean, one of them, uh, the the two magician, uh, the Le Dumago. That's the one <laughs> that uh, is so interesting because you can sit there and it's so amazing. You, you will, your, your years will be filled with all the languages that you can ever imagine. It's, it's, it's incredible. Wonderful. Yeah. And obviously, well, the croissants and, croissants and coffee, you know. That's a great tip. I will definitely visit there. I could tell you, uh, Javier, that 
when I spent a little bit of time in Italy, the first thing I learned to say was was how to ask for uh, coffee and a croissant at a cafe, and that <laughs> was pretty much the most important few words I ever learned. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing your work experiences with us. More than happy. Anytime. Uh, it is very important that we can have an opportunity to talk to students and um, and to the organization and so and see how we can uh, make it better for everybody. Well, that's our show for today. Please join us next time. Rain or shine. Clear Skies Ahead, Conversations About Careers in Meteorology and Beyond is a podcast by the American Meteorological Society. Our show is produced by Brandon Kroos and edited by Peter Trepke. Our theme music is composed and performed by Steve Savoy, and the show is hosted by Rex Horner and Kelly Savoy. You can learn more about the show online at www.ametsoc.org slash clear skies and can contact us at skypodcast at ametsoc.org if you have any feedback or if you would like to become a future guest. 